Hey, thank you for checking out the V1 Church podcast. This is your lead pastor, Mike Signorelli, and we cried today at service. It was so powerful. I'm just telling you, don't look at this as a Father's Day message. Look at this as one of the most transformational experiences you can have this week. I want you to lock in, and I have a very special message for you on the other side. You know what was funny? I was studying the history of Father's Day because I'm like, where did it start? Where did it come from? And do you know that, and it's hilarious to me, but Father's Day was actually founded by a man who sat in a Mother's Day service because Mother's Day existed before Father's Day. And that, that in and of itself says something. I'm from the hood. You can make fun of somebody's dad all day long, but you say, yo, mama, you're about to fight. <laughs> Isn't that funny? You know what I mean? It's something about moms. And this guy sat, this is literally the, the real history of Father's Day. This guy sat in a Mother's Day service and, and got disgruntled and was like, we need our day too. And he made Father's Day. And it's just like a man to make a day to, in response to somebody else's day. And all the women said, amen. <laughs> so I want to continue to break down before we get into scripture. I want to continue to break down for you the history and, and, and really what we inherited in 2019 concerning fatherhood. So can I just take a few minutes and sort of give you the history? Is that okay? Okay, because this, I think, may change everything about how you perceive what a father is and what that has to do with you. You might be sitting in this service and you're like, I'm not a dad, never will be a dad, can't be a dad. You may be in this service thinking like, what does this have to do with me? And I, I want to explain in the next several minutes everything, everything. So the history of fatherhood. So for most of human history, we were an agricultural people. Meaning, before the advent of industrialization and technology, we would sow seeds into the ground, and you would water it, or the rain would, and then several months later, you would get a crop and you would eat it. Now, the only crop that we yield, we smoke. But back in the day, you were connected to agriculture in such a way that your survival depended on it. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Then... Then uh, you were hunter-gatherer types. You heard these phrases. So for, for most of human history, this is the way it was. You would go out, and I'm sorry to offend all the vegan people, but you would kill animals and eat their flesh. And it tasted good. And you have teeth that are shaped in such a way that seems to indicate that God's okay with it. I'm just saying. I'm from Indiana. We kill everything. <laughs> Everything is a meat that can be smoked. <laughs> we smoke meat, not weed. You know what I'm saying? That's Indiana's banner. We fly over. So this is, this is the, the, the human history was like hunting, gathering. It was foraging. It was agricultural. And because of that, that, that reality, you would spend most of your waking hours with your father. And here's why. It would, have became, it would have become a necessity for your dad to teach, train, instruct, and guide you on that journey. Here's how we keep the land. Here's how we till the soil. Here's how we plant the seed. Here's how we hunt. And, and being with your dad perpetually was essential to your survival. Is anyone already picking up what I'm trying to put down? This is the way it was. 
And I'm not just talking about in one society. I mean, globally, this is the way it was. And then in human history, you had technology, industrialization. And in that era, there was a cultural shift. And if you study this, this cultural shift was marked by one thing. The fathers now, because we are no longer an agricultural society, that was being done in a systematic way. Now we were in the era of big industry, mass production, factories, and your father would leave the home and go into these deplorable conditions. Some of the kids did as well, but, but primarily the father was, was viewed as now there was a shift that was happening where the father was viewed as a breadwinner. Have you ever heard that term? Because them being away from the family now for extended periods of time in this industrialized world actually caused a paycheck to come home, which would pay for the basic necessities. So homes were mass produced, owned by landlords, right? Uh, food is mass produced. Big business uh, gets into agriculture. And now it becomes a necessity for dad to be away and you justified dad being gone because when he was gone, whatever happened in the deplorable conditions in that factory caused you to be fed and for a roof to be over your head, and therefore it was justifiable. Are you following with me? Am I going too deep for anyone? So then as you follow the post-industrialized world, what happens is dad now doesn't represent a teacher, a guide, someone to instruct. Now dad is a paycheck. So if you can replace that stream of income, he becomes completely obsolete. Welcome to the 21st century, a world in which we are suffering the consequences of living the delusion that dad is a paycheck. And if you can get money any other way, he's not necessary. And I don't care how much this offends you. It can offend you right out of your seat or you can turn the internet off right now. But I'm here to tell you that when you violate God's original design for a thing, it breaks down. You know, let me just tell you this. Go buy a product at Walmart or Target today and use it in a way in which it wasn't designed and then try to go back to the manufacturer and say, fix this. You know what they're going to tell you? You voided the warranty because you use it in such a way that it wasn't designed to be used. You didn't hack it, you destroyed it. <laughs> and what happens is we think that we hacked God's design with industrialization and removing the family, the, the, the nucleus from the family and breaking it down. And we think that we've hacked society. And I think that it is glaringly obvious in 2019 that with something we are doing, we're doing it wrong. I mean, that on a lowest common denominator, somebody can say amen to there's something wrong about the way in which we are doing it. And, and I think that if we can go back to the sacred, esoteric, holy way that God says things should be done, we can find this narrow path and walk in and find life. So can I tell you what the Bible says about what this whole thing's about? All right, so right now today, the role of the Father as it's devolved into what it is right now. In America, 43% of children live without their father. That's a little less than half. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are fatherless. 71% of all pregnant teenagers are fatherless. 71% of high school dropouts are fatherless. 75% of adolescent patients in chemical abuse centers come from fatherless homes. The evidence is overwhelming that I'm irreplaceable. 
something is going on. Fatherless children are twice as likely to drop out of high school, twice as likely to end up in jail, and four times more likely to need help for behavioral problems. I cannot be replaced, but we live in a world in which we have convinced people that you can. Some people ask, are fathers necessary? And the Bible gives us a resounding yes. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6, if you're taking notes. Uh, now, we've got some super Christians who are like, I know that scripture, I've heard it, but I'm about to turn it on its side and give you a revelation of it you probably never had. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, 99% of the time when you read that scripture, you're thinking about the emphasis being on what? The child. Train up a child in the way he should go, and then when he's old, he will not depart in it. But see, the other side of this scripture is the destiny of a man to train a child. It's not just the child receiving the training, it's the necessity, the command, do the training. And so there's something inside of every man innately that wants to train a child, that wants to teach and to train. Social media is successful as a result of us tapping into the innate desire for people, especially men, to give their opinions. Am I right? There's something so satisfied with those keyboard warriors are like, I'm training up the whole child of the internet. I'm telling everyone how they should do their whole life. I'm showing you how I do my lawn and I'm going to tell you how to do your lawn. Because it took me my whole life to get this house on Long Island. I'm going to teach you how to do everything all the time. There's something innately in us. And so if, if you look at that scripture, you'll get a revelation that your destiny as a man is hidden in that scripture as well. Train up a child. Can I keep going? Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6 through 7, the Abrahamic covenant. It says, and these words which I command you, say command. Oh, man, it's not an option. I command you shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them. And, you, and when you sit in your house, when you're on your Ikea couch, is that in your translation? When you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up, these are my ways, says God. You shall, which means you must, Teach them to your children. Teach them not just in church, not just in the Sunday school, but teach them when you're sitting on the couch. Teach them when you're laying in the bed and they're within earshot of hearing it. Teach them perpetually my ways, my sacred ways. See, the way that we do life, Abraham, it looks different than the Gentiles. The choices we make are different than the choices that they make. The things that we decide to do with our time looks different than the way that they spend their time. And we might not be able to do that soccer league because we've got a commitment to the house of God. I may not be able to hang out with you that night because I've got rehearsal to lead them in worship. There's something about our life that's peculiar. There's something about our life that's different. My bank account's not going to look like your bank account. I'm going to spend my money in such a way that's a reflection that I know something that they don't know. And Deuteronomy was saying, hey, hey, you know something that they don't know and you must, you shall teach it to your kids all the time. And see what happens some of the wounds that I've walked people through in life are wounds from having a dad that was sitting in the room but not present. 
And when, the, and when they're on their phone for hour after hour after hour, Deuteronomy is being violated because there's something about this. There's this perpetual teaching. There's something about this scripture that says this. It says, you shall teach them diligently. What's that word diligently? It means, Dad, when you're tired, drink a pot of coffee on the way home after work because you haven't clocked out yet. Diligently teach them the ways. If you're waiting for Mike Signorelli to parent your kids on a Sunday, you're going to miss it Monday through Friday diligently teach them and there's something inside of every single one of you that feels like your life would have been better if your dad would have diligently taught you the sacred ways too that's where so much of the discontent comes from it comes from this idea that man if my dad would have taught me the secret knowledge about a different way to do life maybe I wouldn't be paying the price for it right now Boomers, your dad maybe sat down and said, man, I love this new invention called television. <laughs> Millennials stuck on our phones. What's the next thing going to be? Probably the Matrix. There's dad just plugged in the back of his head. <laughs> He's gone. <laughs> what is it? Luke chapter 11, verse 11 through 13 says this. You fathers, if your children ask you for a fish, do you give them a snake instead? Some of the hillbillies are like, Maybe. If you, <laughs> I'm just saying, where I'm from, people don't understand this scripture. I really got to break it down for them. Or if you ask for an egg, do you give them a scorpion again? Again, maybe. <laughs> We're going to go with a no. We're going to go with a hard no on this. Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will, you, will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Here's what this scripture says. 100% of the time, if you're a super Christian who's been going to church your whole life, you read that scripture and you know what you were thinking? Because we, we, we actually have perpetuated a very selfish Christianity in, in the 21st century. You probably thought, God, you're about to give me something good. You probably missed the point that he said, give you the Holy Spirit. You were, you were thinking Alexis. <laughs> But if you got past that, you might have been thinking about him giving you something else. But the other side of this paradigm is the idea that hidden within your destiny as a man is to want to give good gifts to your children. And it says that even sinful people still feel this innate desire. You know, the most frustrated you will see a man in life who has children is when he feels like all of his hard work doesn't add up to the ability to give good gifts to his children. Yes. And then when he, he comes home and you've got another list for him and all that he did still doesn't feel like it's enough, you will break him down. Yes. You will break a man down. Do you know that all of society at this point is rigged to siphon out every bit of dignity and money a man's got and break us down? You know that the only thing they play on these movie screens is the kind of stuff that takes us away from our wives and not brings us closer? Do you know that everything we watch on our phone is, is, is literally divisive and it's this whole system, this demonic system that governs every single principality and power and ruler in the high places is, is conspiring with themselves to rig this whole thing to stop fathers from being fathers. But I'm so thankful for a heavenly father that is literally causing real men to rise up in the midst of this with the father's heart something so necessary about this message ephesians chapter 6 verse verse 4 says this it says fathers don't provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them and all the children said amen rather bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the lord here's another revelation 
Dads are built to discipline. If you are disciplined too harshly or not enough, you will ironically not feel loved at all by your dad because discipline is something that we were created to do. And that's just something inside of us. Hebrews chapter 12, verse nine says it like this. Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the father of our spirits and live forever? Do you know why Hebrews chapter 12, verse nine worked very well when you contextualize it to the audience that it was intended for at that time, but doesn't work so well nowadays? Because we have entire generations who were never disciplined by fathers at all. And so when we talk about submitting to the discipline of an unseen father, how can we do that if we've never submitted to the discipline of the seen? If we've been abused and the discipline that we have been uh, subjected to by our seen father, see how the lights are flicking? There's so much power surging on the stage right now uh, through, through this sermon that it's just like, it's supernatural. If you're watching live, this is not a glitch. This is clearly paranormal. <laughs> you got to roll with it. I told our team, I said, the vision for this house is so big, we may be load in, load out forever. I mean, nobody gets to permanently stay in Nassau Coliseum. You know what I'm saying? You got to load in, load out. Um, so, see, there it is again. You see the fuego. But what happens is fathers are built for discipline. So I have an acronym called DAD, and I want to give you D-A-D. Can I give you the acronym real quick? Is that all right? So D is for father's discipline. Father's discipline. We have longed to be disciplined by a father. There's something right in our world when we are properly disciplined by a dad. You know, when I was a high school teacher, I had this, you know, understanding that culture is both what you create and what you allow. So some people do a good job of creating culture, but then they allow a lot of the wrong things and they end up with a culture that, that they don't like. So, you, know, you know what I'm trying to say? Or some people, they don't allow a lot of stuff. They're, they're hardcore disciplinaries, but they also don't create anything good either. So, so culture, even in a good local church, is both what we create and what we allow. And so as a high school teacher, I said, forget about all these other classrooms down the hall. I get to control the culture that I'm building in this room. And so I had started this, this thing three, four, five years into my teaching career that peop, the students would say, when you have Signorelli's class, it's going to be hard. He is, he is going to discipline you, but you are actually going to learn for the first time in 11 years. And that was sort of the legacy that I had. Well, I had this student, and man, I'm telling you, I did everything in my scope of disciplinary action. I gave him detentions, put him out in the hallway, crucial conversations, extra time with me during lunch, extra homework. I mean, I did every trick I had to try to get this kid under control and educate him. And I truly never feel like I really did that job. But at the end of the school year, I'll never forget, he came to me after school and he waited till all the other students left. And he said, hey, Mr. Signorelli, I want to tell you something. Thank you for this school year. He said, you know how I know my dad doesn't love me? He lets me do whatever I want. And he says, thank you for disciplining me this year. That's how I knew you truly cared. That's a 16-year-old boy. There's something inside of all of us that yearns to be disciplined. You know what's funny? You're never going to see a worship song in this era that talks about the discipline of God. But do you know that if you read the Bible, you will find Davidic Psalms where it was his worship songs about thanking God for disciplining him? 
See, there's something in your life that may be missing if you've only sang about the reckless love of God and for you that meant him giving you everything you ever wanted and it didn't include discipline, you might be missing out on some of the love of God. There's something about his discipline that is so good to know that you're cared about. I have spiritual fathers and mentors over me and there are some days where I've got them on on Zoom and we're doing a video chat and my wife starts sweating because they're rebuking and disciplining me to help me get to the next level. My wife's like, it was hot in the kitchen today. They ripped you up and I said, man, isn't it so good to be undercover? I love the fact that they still love me enough to discipline me. If you've got a healthy church, don't you know that you're gonna have leaders that love you enough to discipline you? See how nobody got in shout and ran around during that? <laughs> Whoever didn't shout's getting disciplined. You know, here's the A in dad. Fathers analyze. Fathers analyze. You know, I have a five-year-old daughter named Everly. I basically have narrated her whole life through sermons. So when she asked me, what was my childhood like? I'm going to say, I just used you for content for like 18 years. <laughs> So just go back to the V1 Church podcast. But she's no longer a baby. She's now a a preschooler, I think you call him. And, you know, when babies cry on airplanes, it's because their ears are popping or they're hungry, right? When 30-year-olds cry on airplanes, it's because they didn't get the seat they wanted. (laughs) You know, but when five-year-olds start screaming and crying on airplanes, it's a little weird. And, you know, so what happened was we were recently on a flight and we encountered a little bit of turbulence. Now, I read this book by Glasner called The Culture of Fear. And when you read that book, it gives you a statistical breakdown on the things that we should reasonably be afraid of versus the things that we really shouldn't be afraid of. And you'll find that most of what we all are afraid of in culture today is the result of just news media sensationalizing it. And do you know that statistically you have such a greater chance of dying in in a car accident on the way to the airport than you ever do dying in an airplane? Did you know that? And so for me, when I fly in airplanes, now I have flown over some crazy turbulent waters. I mean, I've flown over some regions where I was just like, this might be it, Lord, you know? And I've had those moments, but something that's always comforted me is my interpretation of the data because I can look and analyze and remind myself that I have a knowledge that's greater than those who are just simply subjected to the news media. So I remind myself, no matter how bad this turbulence is, there's an infinitesimal chance that I'm gonna die this way. And so even when other people are freaking out, I just sort of like chill, just keep watching my movie because I have a higher understanding. So all of a sudden we were on this flight recently and my daughter, we hit a little bit of turbulence and she grabs the seat armchair. And even that in and of itself, isn't most of our fear responses completely useless? You think as a five-year-old, this is gonna save her? Her grip on that armchair? Some of you are holding on to the armchair of life right now and your fear response to what you're encountering is useless. Can I just tell you that? You're still not the pilot no matter how hard you clutch the armchair. And so what happens is she clutches it and she looks at me and I reassure her, it's going to be okay, Everly. And she goes, oh, dad's right. You ever go through something in life and it's just a little bit of turbulence and just a, just a worship service is just enough to make you feel like it's going to be okay. Just a, just a reminder. Somebody hits you up with a scripture. You ever do that? Go to read your Bible and that daily scripture is exactly what you need. You say, oh Lord, thank you. (laughs) But then you hit turbulence. That's even worse than that. 
And we were in this plane. It started getting progressively worse. And what went from a little bit of this started, oh, she gets nervous. Dad, dad, dad. And then before you know it, we start hitting that kind of, kind of turbulence where you're bouncing in the air. And then all of a sudden, I think he went to go make a turn to, I don't, I don't know what was going on, but, but Everly starts screaming like man status. <laughs> Everly's like, ah, no, no, we're going to die. Literally, and I'm like, and then Julie puts her hand over her mouth. Like, you stop. You're not gonna die. She's like, ah, ah. for real. And then I'm like, stop, because somebody's gonna take a video because you can't even put your hand on your kid's mouth nowadays without abusing them. You know how it is, and that's gonna be the headline: pastors from New York abuse their kid by restraining them because they should be able to have scream however they want. So all of a sudden, she's ah, I'm dying. And I mean, it was like crazy. And I'm like, Everly, it's okay, it's okay. But here's what was happening. No one else on that plane was screaming like my daughter because they all had a different interpretation of the data. So dads analyze, which means that I had a job in that moment to teach her how to calculate all the input that she was receiving in that moment and saying, hey, even though you're restrained because they said fasten your seatbelt, doesn't mean that you're gonna die. And there are some seasons that you're gonna go through in your life, church, where you will have to fasten your seatbelt and you will feel restrained. But just because you're restrained doesn't mean it's gonna end in death. You will reach your final destination. And that's why it's so important to read the Bible because it's our dad giving us the analysis of the data. He's saying we don't scream when we go through turbulence because we know the intended destination and the outcome of every situation. Church, do you believe it today? Dads, analyze. See, there was a man who came up to Jesus and said, Jesus, Jesus, I'm looking at all the data. I'm watching my daughter in bed. Her chest is no longer moving. All the data seems to suggest she's dead. Jesus said, hey, I'm a dad. Let me teach you how to analyze. She ain't dead. She's just sleeping. When you get to meet your heavenly father, he'll tell you, don't matter what you think, I've got information that you don't have. Is somebody thankful for a dad that analyzes? And the last one is this, fathers direct. Fathers direct, dads direct. Proverbs chapter 22, verse six says, train up a child in the way, in the way that he should go. See, there's something in all of you that has this desire to be given the way you should go. It's a normal thing, it's a natural thing to wanna to be given the way. Show me what I should do next. My life would be easier if somebody could just simply show me the way. You tell me what to do and I will do it. Have you ever felt like that in life before? This is innate inside of you and it is the role of a father to direct, to train up and then point you in the way you should go in the way that you should go. G.K. Chesterton said it like this, God is like the sun. You cannot look into it, but by it, everything is seen. You may not be able to look and see God visibly with your eyes, but because of God, everything in your life can be illuminated. 
There's a way that he shows you. There's a way. The Bible says that his word is a lamp unto my feet. It's not a floodlight. It doesn't always give you 30 years in advance. It may just give you one or two steps ahead of you. But but by him, your, your way will be known. Fathers provide direction by installing identity. Identity produces direction. If you don't have direction in your life, it's because there's a deficiency in your identity. Because what identity will do is identity will actually eliminate options. When you say, I know who I am and what I am, there are ways in which you simply will not be allowed to spend your time. When I would come home in a drunken stupor, my wife would swing the door behind me and lock it and say, you are not Johnny Cash, you are Brian Houston. She was trying to install identity because when you truly believe that you are that thing, it will eliminate other options. If you're called to be a preacher, there are some things that you're going to do with your time differently. There's going to be some options. If you're called to write songs and sing, there's a way you're going to spend your time because identity eliminates options and then narrows your focus and it comes from your father. You know, can I be vulnerable with you guys to close this, close this out? Today was like a really hard and bittersweet day for me because it's been one of the best days, but it's also been a hard day. 10 years ago, I don't know how it happened, but this demonic thought was sown into my mind that I was never going to make it to this birthday. I don't know where it came from. It was probably an assignment, but I had this thing built in my mind year after year after year after year that I was never going to get to today. And I fought with it and I warred with it. And it was just this challenging thing that I struggled with. And and I, I believe that me wrestling with this in front of you is for your benefit. Because there's somebody here that if you were really honest with yourself right now, you would realize that there was a day where you stopped dreaming too. There was a day where your vision ended too. See, the reason why the American educational system and college and all that has been, become such a staple of our society is because we've replaced the father and now your counselor tells you which way you should go. Now your counselor tells you what you should learn and what you should know. I mean, and, and so what happens is maybe you stopped dreaming. Maybe you felt a loss of direction when you graduated high school and you're 30 years out of high school and still have never felt like you've had direction. I mean, maybe you just, it's been a while since you felt like there's been a purpose for your life. And for me, it's like I had all this vision and, you know, vision has an expiration date on it. And my expiration date was today. And I woke up today and I said, not today, Satan, not today, not today. And I want to give you permission to say not today, Satan. And, you know, the very first birthday that I remember And we all have like that first birthday we remember, but the very first birthday that I remember was when I turned three years old. When I turned three years old, um, I was caught up in a vicious custody battle between my earthly father and my earthly mother. And my dad lived in East Chicago. And I remember waking up on my birthday and I had this cake that they hit my, my stepmom and him had bought for me. And I'll never forget, it had He-Man, Master of the Universe on it. Anyone remember He-Man? And it was, and, and so I don't know, 
But as a three-year-old, this is just what stands out in my mind. And then all of a sudden, he gave me this He-Man action figure and I opened it, tore it open, and it had this cap gun loaded feature in the back so that when you put a cap, you know those, remember the cap guns back in the day? Um, and, and when you pulled back on him and he swung and punched, it would hit one of those caps and it would go pow real loud. And so as a three-year-old, I'm like pow, pow. And I remember being like, this is amazing. And you know, at three years old, every, every three-year-old thought they were He-Man. And so when I went to leave to go back to my mom's house, I remember my dad saying, no, you can't take that toy with you. You have to leave it here. This is your real house. And something broke in me then. Something fractured in me then. And I think that's why I remember that birthday. That's the first birthday I remember. And it, there was something about it that just violated the sense of belonging, this sense of home, this sense of identity. There was this vicious custody battle. Some of the most horrific things that I endured, I endured them in, in my dad's house in that age of my life. Maybe only one or two people alive today even know all of what happened there, but there was something so dark that transpired in that time of my life. And you know, the most formative years of your life are from birth until six and seven years old. And there was something in my early formation that was fractured, that was broken, this feeling that nothing is ever really mine and I can't really have anything for keeps in life and it's always being ripped out of my hand and, and it just so, so dysfunctional. Is it okay if I get vulnerable? And you know, yesterday I had this crazy moment because my family said, hey, Sundays are wild for us, so let's celebrate your birthday tonight. And I didn't know they were gonna do that with sort of surprise. And I'm sitting on my bed and I was actually thinking about that birthday when I was three years old. A Couple months ago on eBay, I found that He-Man Masters of the Universe with the cap loaded swing and I bought it for myself as a sign and a symbol of restoration in my life. And I'm looking at that thing and I'm like, man, I, for whatever reason, I just never thought I was gonna get to this birthday. And here I am and I'm sitting there and all of a sudden my bedroom door swings open and my wife and my two daughters come barging through and they're singing happy birthday to me and I just started to weep. I just started to weep. And I said, I'm not that three-year-old boy anymore. I'm, I'm, this is my house. But here's the thing. There's an idolatry that is always gonna be given to you in place of what God really has. And if you're wounded, sometimes instead of getting the real thing, you'll receive an idol in its place. And in my early 20s, I remember at 22 years old saying, I'm going to make a lot of money and I'm going to be a homeowner and I'm going to have what I never had. And I'm going to put, I'm going to have my, and I did it at 22 years old. I got a bank loan and bought a house in Northwest Indiana and I was a baller and I did everything that I thought good men did. And I remember painting my walls and said, this is my house and I'm breaking generational curses and this and this and this. But you know what it was? It wasn't a blessing, it was an idol. Because see, what I really needed was I needed to let God invade every wound of my heart. I needed to give him permission to strip every layer away, to say, because see what happens is if the house is a blessing, then when the house is taken away, the blessing is taken away. But if the blessing is the very spirit of God dwelling inside of you, nothing can take that away. If what it means to be alive is to have a thing, then I can take the thing and you're dead. But if what it means to be alive is to have him, you have everything. 
And there's been some times in the last two years where I've wrestled with my own idolatry and I sat in my 600 square foot apartment in Queens and I sat on my bed and I said, man, God, I'm getting a little old to not have my own house. Man, God, I'm, I'm getting a little old. And you know, church people, some of them don't want you to have anything and be Mother Teresa and then they won't follow you because you don't have anything. And you know how it is. Can I just be honest? And I'm wrestling with this in my apartment. I'm thinking all these thoughts. And as the door barges open, because I feel guilty. You know, sometimes I think we should have a Disney vacation club. But sometimes you have to trade the American dream to go in pursuit of God's dream. And as my door opened and that birthday celebration began, I had this second thought. See, your first thought's yours and your second thought's off in the Holy Spirit. And the second thought was, I am the richest I've ever been. I am the richest I've ever been. I have forsaken the world. I did what the rich man couldn't do. I sold it all. I'm reckless abandoned. No turning back. And I'm the richest I've ever been. And so if you're here and you think being a good dad is giving your kid a house, if you think being a good dad is accumulating a 401k, that should be the unintended consequence of seeking the kingdom first. Because if you don't give them God, you haven't given them nothing. If you don't give them Jesus, you haven't given them nothing. And all I'm primed to give my kids is a Kia Sportage. Praise God. But that baby runs. We've got destiny on us. And those other things are good. But sometimes you've got to give up something good for something greater. And if you're here and you're struggling with the value system of demons that try to convince you to allow money to be your master, there's freedom here today. If you're here and your entire life has been relegated to the idolatry of serving your own pain, there's freedom right here because even pain can become an idol. You can worship at the footstool of your own pain all day long. For me, that was part of my story. He-Man had this phrase. I don't know if you remember it. He was just a normal dude, but he'd lift his sword up into the sky and he would say, I have the power. And a lightning bolt would hit him and he would grow exponentially and just start tearing it up. You know when that moment happened for me? At 27 years old, I was in my house that I bought at 22 thinking that I was the bee's knees. But at 27, God had humbled me and disciplined me so ruthlessly that I realized I'm nothing. And when I lifted up my sword, you know what I declared? He has the power. He has the power. And where secular humanism ends, the supernatural realm begins. Where, where we reach our end is where God begins. And God wants to begin in the story of your life. He wants to begin in the story of your family. He wants to begin in the story of your lineage today because you've been holding your sword and declaring, I have the power, but we both know you don't have the power. You've been trying to hold it together for your family. You've been trying to strive and do everything you could for significance. But if you will find your significance in him right now, you will leave this place the richest you've ever been. Would you stand to your feet with me? A dad 
disciplines. A dad gives a proper analysis and a dad directs. You have been directed into a divine appointment right now. There's wounds that are about to be healed. Would you just close your eyes? He's directing you now. See, some of those things that your heart desires, you want to hear the secret? You are going to get them. But when you do, you'll actually be ready to sustain it. See, there's an alignment in your life that needs to happen. And this is the time. There are men listening to the sound of my voice. I promise you, you will be the first generation in your family to father with the father's heart. I promise you that. Wives, you're married to somebody that doesn't look like it now, but I promise you, before the story's over, your man has greatness in him. He has greatness in him. This is the kind of house where we call out the greatness in the men. We're not going to contribute to this world that tears them down and isolates them in the fear that they can't be vulnerable with what they struggle with. I'm calling out the greatness in you. You're a legend. You will go all the way for Jesus. Out of this house will come many men that will be pillars of culture. And some of the women that are here, you know, I didn't say this last service, and I know we're coming to a close, but one of the darkest days of my life was actually when Bella was born because she looked me in my eyes and I loved her with this love that I never loved any other human being. It was different than how I loved my mom, different than how I loved my wife. It was like I instantly had this love for her I never felt. And then all of a sudden I got home that day because we could, I couldn't stay in the hospital for whatever reason. And I just thought to myself, how could my dad not feel what I felt for, for me, what I felt for Bella? And it broke me. And you know, now I had a friend over the other day and I said, hey, dude, this is funny. When I come home, we're going to be hanging in the kitchen. I said, my girls and my wife, they're like cats. And they're just going to come up to me and get a little hug and then walk away. They're not going to say anything. They all do it all the time. And sure enough, I said that. And Julie comes up like this. And then she hugs me. And then she goes like this. And then a few minutes later, Bella comes up to me and she's like, and it, and it just, it literally, it happened right on cue. And after my friend left, I was thinking about my own sisters. And I thought, if my daughters need that much physical affection from me, what happens to a woman who never had it? And I, I was just broken over that thought. If, if my daughters, I never taught them to do that. If they need to smell dad and hug me that much, all day, just on repeat, whenever they're around me, my wife, what happens to a woman who never had that? Can I give you the good news? There's a promise. The promise in scripture is that he will be a father to the fatherless. 
Last night as I laid my head down on my pillow, I could feel the Spirit of God brooding over me. You know, if you're an orphan like me, if you're fatherless like me, did you know that there is a manifestation of God's presence in your life that is completely inexplainable to anyone else? Did you know that there is an embrace that you can get from your heavenly Father that is just as tangible and dare I say, even more lasting than the embrace that I give my daughters. And, and I know what I'm about to say could offend you, but if you will allow God to hold you in this moment, you might not even want your earthly father to have to hold you again. And if I didn't believe that the love was that real, I wouldn't be saying it right now. Because when you have a father wound, you mourn it in every transition of your life. If your father's not there on your wedding day, it'll reopen. Then the birth of your first child, that wound will reopen again. Then in middle age, it'll open again. Then it, it, it's, it's a perpetual reopening of that wound. And so if I cannot teach you in this moment to go to God as your father, your Monday can't be better than your Sunday. And I have to ensure that in, in the next two or three moments, I teach you to let God love you. Because then, whether you're in the movie theater or not, you'll make it. You'll make it. You'll make it. There's going to be some days where your counselor's booked, your pastor's booked, your disciple maker's booked, the dinner party's full. But if you have the embrace of your heavenly father, you have it all. Just close your eyes with me right now. Some of the crying that you hear in this room right now are tears that have been locked up for many, many years. One thing I love about my heavenly father is that he made a promise that every tear I ever cry, he'll save it. And I think that that imagery simply means that to your heavenly father, there's no wasted pain. So right now, if you want to receive God as your heavenly father, which is the real primary message that Jesus preached on earth, it wasn't go to a deity to get your needs met. It was go to your heavenly father because in him you'll find it all. And if you're here and you want him to be your heavenly father, would you just slip your hand up right now and say, that's me. It's such a purity in this moment. You know, in life, there are thin places, thin places where you can't tell whether it's heaven or earth. When you get into the presence of God, it's a thin place. Father, I pray over every hand that's raised that you would embrace them now, 
that you would hold them now in this moment, that you would enrapture them with your love and embrace them in such a tangible, palpable way that it's undeniable that you are here. Father, I pray that as you hold them, the chains from the past would begin to fall. As you hold them now in this moment, the shackles begin to hit the ground. Oh, the pain that they endured in other seasons of their lives would begin to be purged from their belly, that they would begin to give up to you a pure sacrifice of worship God that they have not been forsaken by you that you said I cannot forsake you I cannot leave you I cannot abandon you I cannot divorce from you I am here always and even to the ends of the earth and father I pray that a new banner would be flown over their life right now a banner of love a banner of love a banner of love perfect love casts out all fear they're not screaming in the airplane of life anymore they're not terrified by turbulence anymore you are a good good father over them today Well, I promised you that this message was going to change your life, and I know that something is happening in your spirit right now. The best thing that you can do is pay it forward. Those who refresh others, they themselves will be refreshed. That means if you'll take a step of faith, share this with a friend, share it with a loved one, something's going to happen in your life as a result of sowing into someone else's life. So go ahead and do that now, and we will see you next week.